Welcome to Absence Management Perspectives, a DMEC podcast. The Disability Management Employer Coalition, or DMEC as we're known by most people, provides focused education, knowledge, and networking opportunities for absence and disability management professionals. DMEC has become a leading voice in the industry and represents more than 18,000 professionals from organizations of all sizes across the United States and Canada. This podcast series will focus on industry perspectives and provide the opportunity to delve more deeply into issues that affect DMEC members and the community as a whole. We're thrilled to have you with us and hope you'll visit us at dmec.org to get a full picture of what we have to offer, from webinars and publications to conferences, certifications, and much more. Let's get started and meet the people behind the processes. Hello, we're glad you're listening. I'm Heather Grimshaw, Communications Manager for DMEC, and I'm talking with Jamira Burley today about the concept of being authentic and to learn more about her work with I Am Here Too, an organization and brand she co-founded to increase awareness of, as the website notes, underrepresented, marginalized, and diverse voices. Jamira Burley is an awards-winning activist, a social impact advisor who has worked in 30-plus countries, and the strategic initiatives lead for worldwide education at a large technology company. She is also the keynote speaker for the 2023 DMEC FMLA ADA Employer Compliance Conference, and I'm looking forward to hearing her presentation titled Fearlessly Authentic, The Story of Self on March 28th in Orlando, Florida. You can read the full Q&A on the website, and we'll include a link in the notes section of this episode. So I'm just going to dig into our questions here. The first, which is, how does one start down the path of being the expert of their own experience? And how can managers and employers create supportive environments for that type of work? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I, it's so funny. I came up with that phrase very much when I was 17 years old and by no means I was not an expert at that moment. Um, But as I've learned along the way, I think what I've centered, what it means to be an expert of your own experience is really centering yourself in your lived experience and the things you've learned along the way. It's oftentimes told to us that if we don't work somewhere, if we don't have these amount of degrees or these accolades behind our name, that we can't consider ourselves to be an expert. But really, our expertise lies in the things we've learned along the way and how we've been able to really use those skills and that knowledge to inform the work we do to better the world in which we live and work in. Um, And I think when I think about the role that managers play is really um, honing in in everyone's unique experience and being able to create space for people to be their authentic self, to show up as their whole self without leaving parts of themselves behind in order to accommodate or to make people feel more comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that enables for people to really um, explore the depths of themselves that they've hidden away from from society and from other people um, to be able to help inform a more prosperous world, but also one that is rooted in differences, right? We're all different in small and large ways. And how can we use those differences as a way to inform us how we should be showing up for ourselves and for other people? Oh, I like that a lot. And it's it's interesting that so many people struggle with that concept of being authentic. And I like what you said about creating space and also being comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's a, a concept that we've heard a little bit about with conversations about belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. 
Yeah, and I think rightfully so, right? We very much live in a society where we're segmented and told certain things about each other that are not true. And so when we're forced to kind of deal with the true identity and the holisticness of individual people, it makes us question who we are and what we've been told about ourselves. Um, and I also think it's very easy for us to villainize people who don't show up as their full self, who oftentimes feel the need to code switch or to be... Um, a public version of who they are internally. And I think it's oftentimes rooted in the fact that, you know, we've all been taught that we're not welcomed as our whole self. That in order for us to show up in the corporate world or in the activist space, we have to uh, bring parts of ourselves that are going to make, that are not going to make people uncomfortable and that are not going to make people question what they've been told oftentimes by loved ones and by institutions that they've trusted their entire lives. And so I think it's, it's a great opportunity for us to sit with the fact that, you know, uncomfortable conversations lead to innovation. Um, as someone who comes from a very large family, I, I bask in uncomfortability. <laughs> um, I'm one of those people that can ask a question and sit in silence for a very long period of time <laughs> while people kind of squirm. And I think it's just because I, I, I'm curious. I'm curious about people. I'm curious about culture. I'm curious about myself. Um, I tell people all the time, one of the greatest ways to kind of understand who you are is to travel outside the place that you grew up in, um, because you find yourself while learning about other people. Oh, well said. And I, I love what you said about curiosity. I, I have frequently been told that I'm too curious and I don't think there's any such thing really. No, no, there's never anything about being too curious. That's funny. Someone said that. <laughs> I know. I know. I do. As you'll see, I have a tendency to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so as a follow-up question, um, would you share a little bit about your path with, with us and what led you to where you are today? Yes. Um, and I actually think that is rooted in why we started I Am Here Too. So I, um, I currently live in Oakland, California, which is across the country from where I grew up in West Philly. Um, 15 years ago, I would have never assumed that I would be in the place that I'm in, not just in where I work or the type of work that I do, but because I grew up in West Philadelphia in the height of the war on crime, um, which was really a war on poor people and a war on people who oftentimes didn't have outlets to be able to, one, express their emotions, but also receive some level of financial support to um, support their families and plan for the future. And so I grew up in a community where it was very much more often for people to see loved ones go to prison and to attend funerals than it was to go to graduations. And so I grew up in a, in a very much toxic environment, toxic, but also loving environment, actually, I would say, because it was very close knit of people who looked out for each other because they had so little. And so we had to rely on each other for a lot. Um, so it was very much a, a village raising a, a, a community. Um, but I also grew up in a space where, you know, people didn't expect to make it to 25. I just turned 20, 34, and I would have never expected to make it to 34. And so um, much of that came to be um, due to the result of my brother, Andre, who was 20 years old at the time in 2005, who was shot and killed in Philadelphia. And um, I think for me as a child, it's it's very easy to not realize how dire your circumstances are while you're living in the moment. But losing him to violence, I think, removed, I wouldn't say rose-colored glasses on it, but it removed my childhood view of the world and made me question why that happened to him and why it continues to happen to people who look like him. And as a 15-year-old child, I 
I didn't know how to kind of channel my energy or I should say my anger. Um, and that started to get the notice of my principal and my um, teachers who who knew me as a very talkative child. And uh, much of that talking, um, talking behavior became very um, confrontational in the weeks after my brother's death. And so my my principal and my, te- my administration, I remember them challenging me to really figure out what I could do to alleviate the hurt that I was experiencing, but oftentimes the hurt that other people in my community were experiencing due to similar circumstances. And that made me create an anti-violence program at my high school that later got implemented into the top 10 persistently dangerous high schools across the city of Philadelphia due to, <clears throat> due to a grant by Governor Ebrindell. And um, that was kind of like my first taste in, I wouldn't say power, but my first taste in realizing that even though I was a young person who didn't have a lot of money, who didn't have a title, that I could do something to change my own trajectory, but also to change the circumstances of my community. And learning about gun violence, getting engaged in issues like criminal justice reform and poverty, it made me realize that these issues are oftentimes the public face to much deeper systematic problems wrong within our society. And so I started using my lived experiences. I became an expert in what had happened to me to share that to policymakers, to funders, to be able to give them contextual examples around what policies and practices could benefit not just me, but the people in my community. Um, And since then, I've still kind of centered my focus on how can the work that I do, regardless of whether or not that's in corporate or in nonprofit or in government or in in the public sector, I should say, how can I use my voice, my experiences, my position of power to be able to alleviate the circumstances or to improve the conditions of the communities that I work and live in? And Part of the reason why we created I Am Here Too was, you know, Ariella, my co-founder, and I had similar but not um, same experience. She lost her bro- um, her brother, Andres, was kidnapped in El Salvador during the Civil War. And so we both kind of turned to our lived experience as a way to kind of change the circumstances of young men in our communities. And so, um, you know, it's led me on this path of trying to create space for people who have been experienced pain to be able to transform that pain into power and use that power to change their world. That's such a powerful story. And I'm so sorry to hear about that terrible loss, which I did read about on your wonderful website, I Am Here Too. And it's amazingly impressive that you've been able to, as you just said, turn that pain into such meaningful work, which affects and improves the lives of so many. Thank you. I appreciate that. And after reading through the website, which is for I Am Here Too, which is such a powerful and personal initiative for positive change, I'm hoping you'll share some information about the tools that help people move, and I'm, I'm using air quotes because I'm quoting from your website, move from breakdowns to breakthroughs, discuss burnout, anxiety, and questions of self-worth. So it's so interesting that you say that. Um, part of because Ariella and I, while our brothers were the kind of catalyst for how we got engaged in this work, we actually took very different paths. She went into the fashion industry, working with former gang members in El Salvador to make um, uh, to make jewelry and fashion items to be sold that then goes back to invest in the communities that they live and work in, versus I went into the advocacy and policy space and in the social impact realm. And it, it was an opportunity for us to think through, you know, all everyone has experienced trauma. Everyone experiences pain. It may not all be at the same level of pain and tragedy, 
But the question is, society oftentimes does not give us the tools, especially women of color, the tools to be able to navigate those emotions in a way that lead us to changing and ensuring that that never happens to someone else, or at the very least, being able to ensure that we don't allow what has happened to us to be the defining factor of who we are. And so when we thought about creating this curriculum around, you know, moving pain to power, um, breakdown, I mean, breakdowns to breakthroughs, it really was an understanding of, you know, how can we help people heal within themselves? How can we help people educate themselves on the issues that they care about? How can we help people, you know, build those bridges between where they've been hurt the most and where there's opportunities to transform that into a way that can really um, change their communities and and their lives and the trajectory of their lives. Um, And that means, one, seeking what is harm you, being able to talk through those processes, being able to identify those, those drivers, being able to, you know, confront the people who have hurt you. And even if that is not Verbally, in your in your head, in your emotions, confronting those who have harmed you, being able to reckon with um, your role and how you've been able to heal since that trauma, and then thinking through, you know, where how do you want to show up in the space? Do you want to be a person who is just an informed citizen, right? Do you just want to be um, able to make better conscious decisions about the way you vote? Do you want to invest your money in an organization that is helping folks who have experienced similar trauma? Do you want to create your own organization? Or do you want to advocate? You know, helping people find the pathways that is most um, beneficial to them, their own selves, but also to the larger communities that is trying to advocate. And then helping them hone into their individual skills as a way to supply the communities and the organizations with the the d- desire needs are that needs to be met in order to move that work forward. Um, and so we do it, we, we do trainings both for community members who have experienced trauma. So young men and women who have experienced direct trauma, but also with corporations, we work with a lot of their staff who have experienced trauma and maybe it is not always like direct personal trauma, right? It could be the fact that you live in a society where every day you turn on the news and you see people killed or you live in a community where there was a school shooting and you may not have children that go there, but you live in a community that is directly impacted. So really helping people kind of grapple with the fact that, you know, trauma is going to continue to happen, unfortunately. We don't live in a u- utopia, but there are ways in which that we can help to alleviate that harm and sh- ensuring people have the skills and tools to be able to manage that pain. I think it's really important that you talk about the different types of trauma because so often people will say, well, I haven't experienced trauma directly, so I'm not sure what's quote unquote wrong. And mm-hmm. it, I, I think to open that that purview is is really valuable and I'm sure meaningful for a lot of the people who experience or participate in those trainings. Yes, and I think also a lot of times people forget about trauma that has happened so long ago, right? They've suppressed it or they didn't realize it was trauma in the moment um, because who who teaches us this, right? Like no one really teaches us this. No one really helps us to navigate these things until it's too late or until there's drastic measures that are required. And so we're trying to help people identify, you know, what are those micro traumas that you've experienced? What are those indirect traumas you've experienced? What are the traumas you've, you've, you've inflicted on other people, right? Because we also forget that we play a role too in other people's lives and how have we allowed our pain to harm other people in the process of us trying to heal. Right. It's a really important point as well. So 
moving into that a, l- a little bit differently too, um, can you talk a little bit about what you describe as the art of engagement? Yes. So the art of engagement is really centered around um, a number of areas. One, starting with, you know, identifying your chosen audience. I think oftentimes people assume that everyone is their chosen audience. And in some instances, that may be true, right? There are diversity in the places that you speak, in the places that you engage, in the people you work with. But in all reality, um, in different messages or in different activations that you want to uh, to happen, you have a specific target audience you, or you need to have a specific target audience that you want to engage because that then that enables for you to identify what is the personas of these individuals? What are the things they care about? What are, how, where do they show up? Where, where, what tools do they use in, in order to engage them? Are they on Twitter? Are they on TikTok? Are they on Instagram? Do they mostly read paper books or do they read on their Kindle, right? It really helps you to create a persona of the person that you want to engage because then you can create a strategy that enables for you to meet that person where they are. And for me, meeting them where they are enables for you to create a bridge where you're not asking people, particularly impacted people, to come out of their comfort zone, to oftentimes incur costs that mostly benefit you, right, in order for you to do something. Um, Or also, you know, putting them in a situation where um, they don't feel like the the relationship is mutually beneficial. And so, um, so there's that. And then it also requires you to think about how is this relationship mutual beneficial? So what are you gaining, but what are you offering to the communities, to the individuals that you're trying to engage to ensure that they don't walk away from that experience, feel like feeling like they've been used or feeling like there's nothing that they were able to gain to take back to their communities. No one wants to feel like a token. Um, No one wants to feel uh, like a tool that was used um, in a process of someone else becoming rich or someone else becoming famous. Um, And then also thinking through, you know, how do you move from just listening to what people have to say to actually using that information to create actionable change and providing people with detailed responses about how you use what they've shared with you in an actionable way. Um, For instance, a lot of times young people get very frustrated with policymakers because it's like you've created all these policies, these practices. You never really listen to us. And really, oftentimes, policymakers did listen to young people. The problem is they don't make the connection between the policy they created with what young people actually said they wanted and needed. And like, how do you bridge, br- bring those bridges together? And the art of engagement also leads with, you know, ensuring that people have an active role in what you and what you collectively want to do. Um, so that's not just, you know, helping with designing the initiative or designing the activation. It also requires providing shared leadership with that person, allowing them to be able to call us, be responsible for some aspect of the initiative project or activation, and then working with them to also review and use that that information um, to evaluate whether or not what you completed, implemented, worked, um, because I think that creates a mutually beneficial relationship and also allows for community members to feel like they have an active role in the work that's happening. So for me, it goes far beyond just like hosting a town hall and listening to feedback. It, it's a lot of homework leading up to the engagement, and it's a lot of collaboration leading after the engage, the initial engagement. You gave the example of policymakers and frequently younger people feeling frustrated that someone didn't hear them. I think that's probably 
really common in the workplace as well, that someone says something, there's a disconnect, and both parties leave that interaction frustrated. So I'm, I'm hoping that you can maybe talk a little bit about how managers and employers encourage and support a different type of interaction that leads people to feel more connected and, and maybe to know how to create some of those bridges that you described. Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say it definitely varies depending on the structure of the organization. Um, and I say that in relationship to the pre-homework, right? Because it's very easy to say, okay, we're going to take a survey or we're going to host this town hall because we want to hear feedback from folks. But if you look across your organization, there's only three people of color or two people with a disability. And you expect those people to to be the, the vocal points for advocating on behalf of their lived identity. It puts them at a disadvantage. And oftentimes it puts a target on their backs if they don't have the internal support to be able to verbalize what their experience in a way that um, doesn't come doesn't co- create a blowback against them on their career path. Um, so, in regards to the, the homework, is one ensuring that there is um, ensuring that you are creating multiple layers of um, places where folks can provide feedback. So, whether that's anonymous, whether that's in person whether that's written form, you know, ensuring that people have a range of different ways in which they can verbalize and create conversation. Also, um, I, I did a workshop once with a company and what we did is that we, we actually broke the groups. Uh, um, we did like a training session with a number of employees and we tried to uh, break the groups up in a diverse way where we had folks from different um, lived experiences on each of the group. And through that, they collectively created recommendations that was then projected out by a, a a population that was more represented within the company. So uh, if it was a group of um, individuals that wanted to put forth, you know, questions around diversity and inclusion, um, they, one of the white members who used their privilege and power verbalize what those recommendations were as a way to kind of alleviate the concerns coming back on their coworkers. I say all of that to say, again, have multiple ways for people to provide feedback, create a safe space for folks to be able to collaborate with each other in order to to elevate that feedback to management. Also providing a transparent process of how you're going to utilize that feedback and that engagement. Um, Create committees, make sure that those committees or those employee engagement groups are well compensated and well resourced. It's very easy to say, you know, we have all these employee networks. So whether that's women's, whether that's LGBTQ, um, whether that's African-American, whether that's, you know, um, indigenous, whether that's um, people with disabilities, you can have all these different groups. But if the leadership is not well compensated, if they don't have the resources, we're asking them to do Um, even more work that is only hindering their ability to show up accurately in their work. Um, And it's taking advantage of them. So, you know, making, that's why I'm always, you know, raising my eyebrows when people are like, well, we have all of these groups. I'm like, yeah, but you're not compensating. You don't have any funding to actually host any events. So it's like, what really is the the factor here? And how is that reflective in leadership? Um, So yeah, it's, it's definitely a collaborative process and you have to be transparent. You have to include people along the way. Um, you have to, you know, be honest about when you're failing and accomplishing the goals or the agreements that you said you would do based off the feedback from your employees. I um, mean, it can't just be a one-off thing, right? So whether that's quarterly, whether that's twice a year, a lot of companies host these town halls, a lot of feedback is given, there's no transparency about what happens after that. 
There's no timeline of when any of these implementations or changes will come. And so just being conscious that, you know, employees are just as important as your shareholders, right? They are the um, engine behind your your company to keep it moving, to keep it operating, to bring in the innovation. And so we want to ensure that there are safe spaces for them to show up without feeling like um, them voicing their concerns and ideas will uh, create a hostile work environment for them. Do you have suggestions on how managers and employers can demonstrate that they not only encourage but support authenticity in the workplace? I think the comment that you just made about funding to compensate the groups as well as also being transparent is really important. So I'm, I'm kind of answering the question I just posed, I think, potentially, but I'm, I'm hoping that you might have some uh, examples or some specifics to share with folks who do want to encourage this, but find themselves frustrated or maybe not sure how. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's it's not a silver bullet to any of this, right? It requires intentionality and active participation along the way. And no company is going to get it right overnight. Um, but I think what's really important is like leading with trying to lead with trust and trying to lead slow. Like you don't have to get there quickly in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Because I think people appreciate when they feel like something is happening, right? That it is moving and that we have a clear understanding of the timeline. So for employees who are trying to do something like this, the three things that I definitely think should be included is based on the feedback people are giving you, what are, what are you agreeing to do based off that? Like, what are you actually agreeing? Okay, we've heard all this feedback. This is what we can say that we collectively have the ability to do. We have the finances to do over the next six months. What do what we like to do over the next 12 months? What we like to do over the next 24 months? So people have something to track. And also, who is who is responsible for each of these aspects, right? We don't want folks, to, um, a company, to make these grand, these grand statements about what they plan to accomplish. And there's no point of contact of who's managing each of these aspects for people to hold them accountable. And then also, where are the opportunities for shared leadership, right? Um, so whether that's working with the employee engagement groups, making sure that we're providing them compensation for that extra work. And then champion, and then celebrating that extra work that they're doing, right? Maybe that's a part of their review process. Maybe that is part of their bonus process. But ensuring that you know these folks are putting in extra work to ensure that your workspace, your company, is doing well, right? That people feel welcome. That people feel like is being heard. So I definitely think those three needs to be included. Um, timeline to ensure accountability. Who is the point of contact? What are you agreeing to actually do? Um, working shared leadership and accountability along with the employees so they feel like they're a part of the process and being transparent along the way. If you're messing up or you don't have it all together, tell people that. So that way they can feel like I, I never want a politician to, to lie to me. I never want my boss to lie to me. I would rather they be like, you know, we're trying to get this done. We can't because of this. And we're working through it. We're trying to push through it this way. Oh, this is our and this is our plan B if we don't if we're not able to accomplish that. Um, because then people feel like, you know, they have their back and they're, they they feel just as um, committed to the work as they are. It's nice to almost have permission to hear you say, no company is going to get it right the first time so that the the executive or the, the person who is leading this charge knows that he or she is in good company. Right? Um, and there's a little bit more grace there. Yeah. I mean, any company that got it right the first time, I would always question, well, what took you so long? <laughs> right? Like if you had all the answers and all the resources, what, what took you so long? Um, but yeah, no one's going to get it right. And, and no, because no one's perfect. Very true. So you have also been called a youth whisperer 
Can you talk a little bit more about that and what your advice is for managers and colleagues of different generations to interact more successfully and supportively? Yeah, um, that's such a great title. I got it from, (laughs) I'm happy that young people gave me that title um, and not older folks. But um, yeah, so I've, over the last 17 years, my entire career experience have, while it has ranged in industries, I've always worked from it from a center of, you know, impact the communities, but more specifically, you know, young people. How do we create pathways for young people to be at the table when decisions about them are being made? How do we ensure that we are recognizing that not all young people are a monolith, that generationally they are different? Um, because that's the way we raise them, right? And they also, each generation, they have access to different resources. So how do we think about those resources as a complement versus as a hindrance to engaging those young people? Um, oftentimes we hear adults say, you know, you know, young people spend their, all their time online. Okay, well, if they spend all their own time online, the question you should ask yourself, well, how do we reach them where they are? Right? How do we use a tool that we know that they're utilizing and try to reach them? I say all of that to say, um, I, I think companies or organizations that are trying to engage young people, millennials, Gen Z, um, and, you know, alpha, generation alpha that is now coming up, um, it's, it's actually taking a step back, shutting up and hearing what young people have to say. Right. It's very easy for us to, you know, cuff at the fact that, you know, young people want to work from home or at least work at a, um, from a hybrid perspective. It's very easy to see that as, you know, you know, oh, they're just being lazy. But a lot of young people are saying, no, they don't want to deal with the microaggressions. No, they don't want to work in a, an environment where they're expected to spit, to commit the vast majority of their youth and their um, to an organization that they don't feel valued at. Like hear those things and those root causes and try to work at solving those root causes versus attacking them with what you feel is a very surface level thing that you as a generation never got to do. Um, I also think it's oftentimes really interesting of um, the elder generation who uh, are disliking of some aspects of the younger generation, when in all reality, they hated those things too when they were their age, right? But it's our interest just doesn't lie at doing the same thing for, for 20, 30 years. And so I just think that um, for anyone who's trying to engage, employ, or sell to young people, it really requires you to recognize that you know this is an entirely different generation that is motivated by social justice more than any other generation in our history. And that is going to influence everything that they do and how they show up. Absolutely. And which is, is really heartwarming and inspiring. So hopefully, uh, as, as you know, people can turn the way they, they approach this to really embrace it. Exactly. I mean, don't see it as a, a negative thing, especially with many companies, um, are now seeing that doing the right thing is not, is not against their bottom line. It's actually, it can increase their bottom line when they do it correctly. So doing good, also can be good for your bottom line. Absolutely, which I love. And I have to say, I'm really looking forward to your presentation in March and to hopefully meeting you in person. So Likewise. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and truthfully for the work that you do. It's, it is very inspiring. Thank you. I'm super honored and looking forward to the conference and hope to meet you soon.